Well, we're continuing in our series through the book of Ephesians. And uh, if you remember back to when we started a bunch of weeks ago now, we said that Ephesians is generally uh, split into two halves. The first half is all about what God has done for us. It's about his goodness. It's about his love. It's about his beauty. It's about the saving work of Jesus on the cross. Um, But we also said that when you get to chapter 4, verse 1, you get the word therefore, and then you pivot into this second half of the book of Ephesians, which is not so much about what God has done for us, but it's about on how we are supposed to live. Now, I'll let you into a a very badly held secret, which is that most people like the first half of the book of Ephesians better than they like the second half. I mean, why would you not love all those amazing things that God has done without having to think about what we might do in response? But as we're going to look at this morning, you will see hopefully by the end that this really matters. It is beautiful, it is good, it is life-giving, and it is how God's kingdom comes. And so we're going to get our reading this morning. So if you have your Bibles, it's always really helpful at Vintage. Uh, We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 17. It'll be up on the screens as well. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we were all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer and must work doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. All right, thank you, Seth. Tough stuff, right? Tough stuff. I don't know how many of you have this little passage up on your fridge at home or as your wallpaper, your desktop background. These are not generally the words that we love to read in Scripture. Actually, they can feel kind of a bit jarring, really. We can end up kind of thinking like, God, I thought you were the God who was about grace. I thought the whole idea was that Jesus came to save us, to forgive us, to set us free, and one day get us to heaven. This is not seemingly our best life lived out. This feels more like, stop it. Don't do it. Behave properly. This is more like footloose, right? Don't dance, don't drink, do not smoke. What about grace? 
What about grace? In fact, I think within the culture that we live in today, this idea of having to adhere to some sort of external ethic is actually deeply problematic. We live in a moment which is all about like the authoritative self, right? Do what you want with who you want, however you want it. In fact, be anyone you want to be as long as you don't maybe harm somebody else. And if that's the case, then this idea of this sort of religious way where we're told we have to behave in certain ways, that feels like something, if anything, we should throw off immediately. Instead, we should just do what feels right, live our truth, work out of our inner source. Whatever we do, do not let someone put your morality on you. But if that's the case, if that's the world we live in, what do we do with passages like Ephesians chapter 4? And this is, by the way, the beauty of going through a book of the Bible where you're not allowed to skip bits. <laughs> what do we do? Well, here's three things you can do. Number one is you can skip it. You can skip it, right? Let's just not read this part. I mean, we all have our favorite parts of Scripture. I mean, let's just be honest. We all have passages that we really like and ones we find a little bit more difficult. So maybe the best thing we can do is just go, let's just not read this kind of stuff from Paul. Like, I love Jesus. He is great, right? He's all about forgiveness and healing and salvation. Like, that is what I'm all about. I will read Jesus up until like the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, and then I'll skip that bit, and then I'll go back to some other bit that I really like a little bit later. Do we just skip it? Maybe not. Do we try our very, very hardest to explain how this could never possibly be about us, right? Do we get our hermeneutic lens out or get our systematic theology out or try and work some apologetic argument to say that? There's no way that Paul could possibly mean me. Right, he must have meant people in a Jewish context or a Greek context, or he must have meant people in the first century. There's no way that Paul could have been as unreasonable to include me in scriptures and statements like this. Again, seems a little bit unhelpful. And if those don't work, then maybe there's only one third way we can do this, which is actually to humbly, graciously kneel before these kind of passages and ask the question, how God does this fit with the very good news that Jesus came to bring? How is this life and life to the fullness? How can we understand this as a natural and good continuation of everything that existed in Ephesians chapter 1 to 3? And it's challenging and it's hard and you're going to see in a minute that it's beautiful and absolutely necessary. And I think we need the Holy Spirit's work, so why don't we pray for a minute? Thank you, God, for the full counsel of Scripture that is beautiful and true and real and life-changing and often quite challenging. This morning, would you open up our hearts and our minds to hear you speak to us that we might become more the people you always intended us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. So if we're going to tackle this uh, piece of scripture, we need to remind ourselves of the whole sweep of God's created order. We've done this a bunch of times through the, the series, so apologies if you've heard this before. But basically, when God created the world, it starts in that bit in Genesis 1 and 2 with the beautiful creation. It starts with a God who creates creatively, who creates lovingly, who creates skillfully, who creates stars and planets and rivers and seas, and he creates animals and he creates human beings. And each one of those things is beautiful, not just in its individualness, 
but it's beautiful in its order. That God creates a shape, he creates a way that humanity is supposed to relate to one another, to God, to the human, to the animals, to the rivers, to the land. The whole thing is created in this very, very beautiful and precise way. There is this one story, the family of God living in Eden. But then you get to Genesis 3, and Genesis 3 is radically different because it's not about creation anymore. It's actually, if anything, it's about like decreation. It's about human beings saying to God, we're now in charge, right? We're taking the wheel of the car. But the problem is, is that whenever five-year-olds take wheels of cars, it tends to go badly. I know you know that. And what we read all the way from Genesis 3 through the rest of the Old Testament is not of like, wow, you did so well, fantastic, that all went really well for you. Actually, we read of destruction, and we read of brokenness, and we read of darkness. The, the most chastening summary, I think, is in Judges 21, 25, which is one of the very first books. And it says this, in those days, Israel, that's God's people, had no king. Everybody did as they saw fit, right? You think that moral relativism is like a post-enlightenment or like late 20th century invention. Actually, it's not. These are the very first human beings who decided it would be way better if they were just in charge of everything and wrote their own stories. If you remember that diagram from a bunch of weeks ago where we said like in Genesis 1 and 2 you have one story, one narrative line throughout humanity and then suddenly from the fall all of it splinters. 2, 4, 8, 16, 32, 64, 128, blah, blah, blah. It just carries on and on and on and on. There's not one narrative. Everybody did whatever they felt like. But the sad reality which you read if you pick up any page of the Old Testament is it's not good. It's not good. Darkness, sinfulness, brokenness in the vacuum of truth and authority like this chaos and evil starts to infect the very world itself. Now that's pretty depressing but it's also not the end of the story fortunately because chapter three of the human story is the story of recreation. When Jesus comes to earth, we sometimes understand it in our minds as Jesus came, he died, and he rose again so that one day, sometime distant in the future, I can go to heaven. And we have this picture, don't we, of heaven as this beautiful place without sin and brokenness and death, and it's going to be amazing. And in the meantime, we're basically told, just wait, just wait it out. You'll get there one day. But that isn't really what the story of recreation is in Scripture. Like, yes, heaven is real. It's excellent. It's the fulfillment of everything. But yet, the recreated story doesn't start one day when you die. It has actually already begun. See, when Jesus dies and rises again, we get this amazing little thing that happens. I don't know if you remember the Easter story, like John chapter 20. First day of the week, Mary gets to the empty tomb and she's like, oh my gosh, they took the body. Where's he gone? And so she goes around the area of the tomb and she meets this dude who she discovers, she thinks he's the gardener. Remember that bit? Right? And she's like, oh, where, have you, where is Jesus? Where have you put his body? And it's a kind of fascinating quirk, but what it's actually is, it's like a little nudge, nudge, wink, wink. It's because it, she's, who she's talking to is Jesus himself and it's like the author telling us, and Jesus is a gardener. God is a gardener. What is going on from the moment of the resurrection on is God undoing all those effects of recreation. 
Undoing all that brokenness, undoing all that sinfulness, undoing all that darkness, and starting again a new creation. A creation which is exactly like the one that was designed all those years ago at the beginning. God is recreating this new family, bringing together all of those different strands into a new reality. And what Paul's describing, the thing that we just read this morning, is not try harder and be better. What he's actually describing is what that new humanity looks like. Right? This is what the family is supposed to feel like. This is what the kingdom looks like as it's being outworked on the planet. And as you and I, as adopted people into that family, we get to play our part in living it out into the world. We are, in a sense, enjoying the recreation, life as it was always meant to be lived. And this way of living is to live out who we are now created to be. This is an ethical instruction for the recreated order, in a sense. And let's be honest, it's really quite beautiful. It's really quite beautiful. Think about it for a moment. This is what Paul says. He said, in this new kingdom-created environment, it is about being humble and gentle, being patient, about bearing with one another in love. It's about unity. It's about speaking truthfully to your neighbor. It's about, in our anger, not sinning. It's about not stealing, but rather instead everybody contributing by using the gifts that they've been given so that they can share with those in need. It's about not allowing unwholesome talk to rule, but instead to build each other up according to their needs that they may be benefited. It's about getting rid of bitterness and rage and anger and brawling and slander along with all sorts of malice. And instead, it's about compassionate. Compassion and kindness, forgiveness. And that's beautiful, right? That's beautiful. It's fantastic. Who would not want to enjoy all of the benefits of living in a world like that? Except, of course, unless we're the ones who have to bring it about. (laughs) Something less good if it's on us. But it's why Paul says in Ephesians 5, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, walk in this way of love. Now, I want to be really clear because the bit where I think a lot of people get unstuck here is that they get the order wrong. And the order is very, very important. Now, when I was growing up, religion always felt like this to me. It always felt like, and you can see it in this diagram, like the the world was a really bad place. Can you see the diagram with the circles on it? That one. The world is a really bad place. But... If you behave in a certain way, and there were always exactly the same sorts of categories included, which you generally were, if you go to church, if you pray lots, uh, if you don't uh, swear or no OMGs in your life, if you don't have sex with someone you're not married to, and you don't lie, if you can fulfill those things generally, then you will be considered a good person. And because you're a good person, when God looks at you, he will say, well done. You are at least a B plus. I like you. And now you can come to heaven. Right? It sounds stupid, but that does generally, honestly, I think how most people think Christianity works. The problem is, it might be an interesting ethical experiment. It's not Christianity. That's not what it means to be a Christian whatsoever. To be a Christian is actually completely the opposite of that. With the next slide, right? 
It is to turn it around. Ephesians doesn't start in chapter 4 with, this is how you live and then God will love you. It starts with, God loves you. God rescued you when you couldn't rescue yourself. God saved me even though I was a complete mess. And because God loves me and I love him, therefore I am invited to live a certain way. Out of respect for him, out of admiration for him, out of love for him, out of belief in his goodness, I am invited to live in certain ways which the world will see that are different. Now, I don't know if I explained that well, but you see how those two things are completely the opposite way around. And this new way, though, is radically different, radically different from how the world generally works. But you might say, well, like, that's fine, Ben, all right, but I still am not convinced that I would ever want to go to the hardship of having to try and do this. It sounds really hard work. Uh, and, and if that's you, I have lots of sympathy for you. I have lots of sympathy for you. Um, I will let you into a little uh, public confessional moment. Um, when I was a little bit younger, uh, I may possibly have been kicked out of my youth group. Um, <laughs> sorry. Um, and the reason I may have possibly, hypothetically, uh, been kicked out of my youth group was basically because of this. And what I'd figured out was that if Jesus comes, he dies and rises again so that we can go to heaven one day, then, and all you have to do to get there is to pray a little particular prayer before you die, that little sinner's prayer, you pray it, one day you go to heaven, then why would I bother with all the hardship of having to try and be good? Like, why bother? Why not live the craziest, wildest, most selfish life you can possibly live, get everything you want to get, and then on your deathbed, pray the prayer and go to heaven, right? I thought it was pretty good logic for like a young person. I thought it was solid. However, I was wrong. I was wrong because I was missing three very, very important things, which, which is what Paul is talking about this morning. The first thing that I was completely missing is that when Paul describes this new humanity's way of living, what he is describing is something that is deeply and completely good for me and you. He is describing something that is life and life in its fullness. When we hear those words, life in its fullness, what I think we're sort of pre-programmed to think is, oh, he must mean like ultimate freedom. Do anything you want, be as wild as you want, just go for it. But actually the freedom and the life that Paul is describing and Jesus describes is not freedom to do anything, it's freedom to be who you were always designed to be. It's to discover that which you were made for, that which God said, oh man, I so love Seth, I so love Adam, I so love Victor, I'm going to make these guys, I'm going to give them a purpose so that they can live in a particular way, which is the very fullness of what they were created to be. Blessing is not endless freedom to do whatever you want with whoever you want, however you want it. It is rather to realize who God made you to be. Now, I, um, I have this old uh, car. It's a P1 
heap of junk. Um, and for the last three years, I have been shouting at it, hoping that it would like suddenly become proper and drive properly. It's an old Corvette. And uh, I've tried upgrading bits and changing bits so that they're better than they were originally supposed to be, hoping that I can make this thing like run, run properly. And I've tried everything, honestly. It's not going well. Uh, I, but what I've discovered recently is that what I probably have been doing wrong is I've been trying desperately to change its original design into something else so that it would be better. And instead, in the last few weeks, I've discovered I might be doing it wrong. Instead, what I've started to do is go back to the owner's manual to look at how it was originally designed to come out of the factory and try and put it back to how it was when it came out of the factory, knowing that that's probably how it's going to run better. And what a surprise, it now runs properly in a way that it didn't before. You know, we are often so caught up with trying to reinvent ourselves and reinvent the world and reinvent everything around us that we actually forget that we were created with design. We were created with purpose. There are instructions for how to do life really well. You will never find an elite athlete, and I was reading about LeBron James recently, who doesn't have structure in their lives, who doesn't have rules, who doesn't have discipline, because they know they need those to maximize the very potential that they always had within them. Right. Uh, I was hearing the story of a, a pastor, and um, he, his son, uh, and a bunch of the other families in the church, uh, they decided that they really wanted to have a, a, like a kids' football team. I mean, the you know the round, kicky thing, not the throwy, eggy thing. You know that that one. Right. Sorry. Um, but the, the problem was is that the pastor and most of the dads had no idea how to coach a, a football team. They had no idea even what the rules were of the game. It wasn't their thing. Um, except for one, one dad, he was a proper coach. And so this, this coach dad agreed that on Saturday mornings, they would go out in the local park and they would create like a little pitch and some goals and they would play. And it went really well for a whole bunch of time. Until one Saturday morning, though, the, the coach was running late. And so he, he, he phoned the pastor and he said, like, hey, I'm really sorry, I'm going to be 30 minutes late. Can you just start a game? Can you just get it going and uh, you referee it and I'll come a little bit later? Uh, and so m my friend, he's the pastor, he, he got the boys all arranged in the park and he put down the sweaters for goalposts and, you know, he, he got his whistle out and he divided them into two teams and they started playing. But the problem was that after like literally one minute, one of the boys shouted foul and another boy went, no, no, that's not a foul. That was a perfectly good tackle. And then like one minute later, another boy shouted goal and another boy went, that's not a goal. It was offside. And then after like three more minutes, like one boy hit another boy because he was so angry because he didn't know what the rules were. And the other boy said that was a totally great tackle. And then after like five minutes, basically all the boys started fighting with each other on the pitch. Everyone was so angry because like nobody knew what the rules were. And my poor pastor friend was standing in the middle of going, well, I don't know what's supposed to happen here. It's a complete mess. Right? It wasn't until 30 minutes later when the coach arrived and stood in the middle and was able to say, guys, this game has rules. It has a way that it was designed to be played. And in order for you to have any fun at all, you've got to play by the rules. And although that is a deeply uncomfortable message to us for life, that is exactly true of how we're invited to live as well. King David, who's maybe the most creative, God-fearing, incredible leader in, in the Bible, he says this amazingly in Psalm 119. He says, oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Your commands are always with me and make me wiser than my enemies. 
I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. I have more understanding than my elders, for I obey your precepts. I've kept my feet from every evil path so that I might obey your word. I've not departed from your laws, for you yourself have taught me. Now, you know, being, being a Christian for 25 years, I'm not sure if I'm entirely ready to say yet that I love God's laws. But I am definitely prepared to say that I am deeply appreciative of his laws. I, I deeply appreciate that God is a God of discipline who wants to keep me on the right path. I deeply appreciate that God is a God of pruning who will sometimes cut me back a little bit so that I can grow into the fullness of the potential that he designed me for. I really appreciate that he's a God of boundaries and he's created a God of instruction so that I know what will be good for me and what will be bad for me. Alistair Begg says it like this, discipline is a privilege because it's evidence of our sonship. I am deeply grateful that I have a father who loves me enough to bother to discipline me, that he doesn't just leave me to live any way I want and cause endless pain to myself. President George Washington says, discipline is the soul of an army. It makes small numbers formidable. It procures success to the weak and esteem to all. Discipline, living this way is actually good for me. The second thing I came to realize is that it's not just good for me, it's actually good for my relationships with others too. If you remember back um, a couple of weeks, we talked about love. And we talked about the radical different way that love is described by God than it often is by the world. We talked about agape love. The kind of love which is deeply self-sacrificial. As opposed to a worldly love that's usually about taking and getting what you can. Agape love says, actually, I will, no matter what the cost, serve you, love you, prefer you, sacrifice for you. And of course, deep down, we know that, there's no, that, that the world would totally benefit from us living in this way. I think, how could my relationships not be better if I was an agape type of person? How could my friendships not be better if I was a person of total integrity who served with humility? How could my colleagues not benefit if I was that kind of person? How could my children not benefit? And even as Paul says in Ephesians 5, how could my husband or my wife not benefit too? He says in 525, husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The idea of love in the way that Paul describes it is not about competing and receiving. It's about this context for human flourishing, which is about giving. It's about serving. It's about preferring. It's about honoring. What Paul is basically saying is if you want to see relationships that will flourish, then guess what? You need to let greed die. If you want to see relationships that are going to flourish, you've got to get lying to stop. If you want relationships to flourish, you've got to get lust to be banished, anger to leave, stealing has got to end. All those things which are destructive and deathly, you've got to let them go. And as you let them go, you will see the life of Christ take hold of your life and the world around you will flourish. It's deeply challenging, but it's so beautiful. So number one, we benefit. Number two, our relationships benefit. But, but number three... Actually, the whole world benefits 
from this sort of way of love. And I think around the world today, like every day, you'll hear these prayers being prayed, which will see something like this. God, would your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven? Now, I don't know if you prayed that prayer. I don't know what it is you think happens when you pray that prayer. But what you're effectively doing is you're saying, God, would those things of heaven, those things of eternity, those things which will one day be right, would they be true now? Would they be true here? Would they be true for me? Would they be true for the world around me? And when we pray that, God always answers it. You know that. And he answers it always in two ways. The first one is a supernatural way because we're recognizing that that's way beyond our ability to achieve on our own. Like, there's no way we can do that. But he also, also answers it with, and yes, I'm going to use you too. Like, think for a minute, like, how is it that you envisage that God's kingdom is going to come to your street? How is God's values and his principles and his value, things come to your school, to your workplace? How, how is God's kingdom going to come to your friendship groups or your family? Well, I, I want to bet that part of the answer is you. It's part of the answer is me. But think for a minute about the fact that probably if you're a Christian here today, there's probably at least one person who knows you for whom you are the only Christian that they know. Maybe you can even like think about who that, name that person for a minute. So one person for whom you are the only Christian that they know, which means when they are thinking about, I wonder what God's kingdom might be like, the two places they're likely to go to is one, the media, which is probably not going to help them very much, or at least give them an accurate picture, or two, you. They're going to look at you, and that's very scary. It's going to look at me, and that's very scary. But that's what it means, Paul says, is that we are supposed to live out this kingdom. We don't just speak about it from pulpits. We, we don't just proclaim it with megaphones. Actually, we live it in the very choices that we make. You know, I love here at Vintage, we talk about mission all the time. We, we, we talk about the ways that we partner with people like Door of Hope and Mission Flight, and we send teams to combat homelessness, or we send teams in to do dental and medical clinics in Mexico, or even we run Alpha here, and we provide these opportunities for people to explore faith. And I think they're brilliant. I find it deeply a privilege to be part of these kind of ministries. But I actually know that every single one of them relies on the same thing, which is individual people who are prepared to live out the kingdom of God. Do you know that over 90% of people who come on the Alpha course and find faith, they come because they were invited by a friend. They don't look up online and think, what's the big answers to life, the universe, and everything? I should go to church. That will be the answer. They don't do it. It just doesn't work like that. They come because someone was really brave and said, look, hey, I think, I, I think you would really benefit from this. Would you join me and come and have dinner with me and come on Alpha? That's how Alpha works. That's how mission works. That's how the kingdom comes. It is the living out of faith. It's about transformed people transforming a world. And I know it's tough. I mean, I don't want to pretend like this is just some quick magic fix. Before I became a paid pastor, whatever that is, um, I, I used to live this slightly strange double life. Um, not the one you're thinking, but... Um, <laughs> 
But at the weekend, uh, Laura and I, we, we were planting a church, and uh, it was a great. We, we loved it dearly, and um, actually some of our first youth group are here this morning. Hi, boys. Good to see you. Um, and, and we loved it. And at the weekends, you know, everyone was, you know, came to church and everyone was like dressed really well and they smiled and, you know, they answered the questions properly. How are you doing? I'm blessed. Or, you know, all, they, they knew the stuff. They knew how to do the stuff. Um, but on Monday morning, I would get back in the car and I would drive down to um, Southampton Docks, which is the exact equivalent of like Long Beach, Port of Long Beach. Um, and I ran these companies in the automotive sector. Um, they were gritty, real blue-collar kind of uh, organizations. I worked with truck drivers and dockers, and it was just great. I loved it so much. Now, they were companies within the automotive sector, and um, you'll be surprised to hear that the automotive sector is not exactly renowned for its kingdom values uh, ever. Um, it, it's an industry which is all about cutthroat, lying, stealing, getting whatever you can, being more dishonest to get a short-term win. Like, it's a brutal place to work. And I was the one Christian in, in, in my company. And, and everybody knew it, and there was always these jokes about, like, what I'd done at the weekend versus what they'd done at the weekend and why they were having more fun with their lives than I was. And it was just like there was always this standing thing. And it was really difficult, honestly. It was really difficult to think about what a kingdom value would look like in an automotive sector. It was made harder because the, the major shareholder in the company was a very, very well-known, very wealthy, very angry atheist who thought that I was completely mad for following, following Jesus. And I remember one day being in the car with him, going to a meeting, and he said to me, hey, you know, you're doing well, Ben, at running this company but there is one thing that is totally holding you back from ever being successful in this job. And it's this, is that you are far too honest and you are far too nice. Could you just sort yourself out? <laughs> I mean, he thought he was being really helpful. <laughs> and I reflected on that deeply for a long time and, and I went through the months and the years and, and the only response I could come up with was to think that actually we're going to prove that we can build a company in this industry that actually looks different. And so little by little, we chose to honor our employees and pay them properly. We chose to do to our customers what we said we were going to do. We chose to actually conduct business in a way that was somewhat environmentally and, and uh, creatively ethical. And if I'm really honest, I screwed it up a lot. I messed it up. I didn't do it right. I, I succumbed to the temptations of like taking shortcuts like the industry all over the place. But just little by little, we started to build a reputation for a different kind of business in the industry. And, it, and it's not that then all our customers and all of our staff immediately said, I want to follow Jesus. But just little bit by little bit, like staff members would come and go, hey, can you just pray for me? Can you pray for me? I'm going through a really hard thing. Or like, I've got a really pain, big pain. Can you, can you help me with that? With that? Or, or like customers would like say, actually, I just started to go to church because you would, you know, I just thought it might be good in my, my life. Just little bits, little bits. We, we witnessed these little glimmers in this darkness, how God's kingdom just started to break through. These people who would have never gone into a church in a million years, were never going to turn up to Sunday morning smiling church, started to encounter the power and the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And I think it's that which is the invitation of the kingdom of God. As Tertullian, the early church father, said, you can judge the quality of their faith from the way they behave. You can judge the quality of a person's faith by the way that they behave. You know, and it, it, it deeply saddens me, really deeply saddens me, that over the last years we have seen these continual scandals in the church. 
I'm so just upset every time I, I see a story where someone in the world says of the church, you guys are so hypocritical. Like you say that you believe this very powerful thing, but actually your life looks nothing like it. Right? You say that you are about love, but you treat people really badly. You say that you're of a higher sexual ethic, and yet you have leaders committing adultery all over the place. You say that you care for children, and yet you have child abuse in your churches. You say that you're about truth, and yet you have lies. Like, what is going on? And I've got friends who say, well, if that's what Christianity is, I'm not interested. I have no interest in being anything like that. It is saddened and just horrified me that whatever denomination you've been part of, whatever country you've lived in, these have been the scandals that have rocked our world because they have been scandals where we have allowed the front end of how we behave to look one way on a stage or in a public meeting. And yet behind the scenes, we've had mess and brokenness. And I'm not saying that we should pretend that we're perfect when we're not. Actually, I think that's one of the most dangerous things you can ever do is try and pretend you've got it all together. Some of the scandals that have come out have been about decades of brokenness that have come even when they've been trying to be stuffed down and hidden into the corner and pretended that they're not there. The invitation of Paul is not to be perfect because none of us will ever be perfect. It's not to be excellent because none of us will probably ever even be excellent. It's to be deeply honest about who we are and how we are. But to say that we are trying... <laughs> We are living, we are going for it, we are giving of our best in the power of the Holy Spirit because we want to demonstrate a different way of being, right? And I want to be clear that that also means that it's not that we take our ethic from the world and try and just match up with everything the world says is good. I think another deeply problematic place that the church has fallen into over the last decades is to try and follow any ethic that the world says today is the way to be alive. And the problem is, is that what the world thinks is good will change every day, every week, every single month. And if we do that, we end up just watering our faith down to almost exactly nothing other than God is just a nice guy. The invitation is not to look outwards to match up with what the world says is good. It is to look inwards to who God is. It is to look inwards and deeper into the character and the nature of who God is and how he loves that we might live that out. And sometimes it will be hard. It will be really hard for us in our workplaces. It will be really hard for us in our streets. It will be hard for us in our schools and the world won't understand us. In fact, Jesus even tells us that will be the case in John 16 when he says, you should have peace, but in this world you will have trouble. Take heart though, I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. We are invited, I believe, to be people who dance to a different beat, who are the people who are letting go of the deathly old broken things constantly. And as Paul says in verse 23, being made new in the attitude of our minds to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And so um, as I close, how could you do that today? How could I do that? And maybe I can offer some things because if this feels hard, it, it, it probably should. And they're just these simple ideas. Number one is that we need to be people who are deeply rooted in a relationship with Jesus Christ. 
We need to be people who are deeply rooted in what he says and how he wants us to be, which means being people who are rooted in the Bible. We need to be people who are reading and absorbing and meditating on scripture so that it becomes our number one authority and not whatever the latest thing on social media is. We need to be people of prayer, being continually full, filled with the Holy Spirit, but also constantly, I think, repenting of the times when we mess it up and we fall short of the glory of God. And I think, also finally, it means we need to be people of deep community with each other. I don't think any one of us has any ability to do this on our own. We, by which I mean I, I need people in my life who are going to call me out when I mess it up, who are going to hold me to the standards of Scripture, who are going to tell me lovingly when I need to make a different choice in my life. That's what it means, I think, to follow Jesus. And so, um, as a response this morning, we're going to sing in a moment, but before we do, I'm going to just read the passage one more time. Um, And I'm just going to invite you to just prayerfully sit with it. And as I read it, to just hear the voice of the Holy Spirit lovingly and gently, maybe even calling out some things for you. It might be things where you're recognizing that actually you are hurting yourself by the choices that you make. It might be things where you honestly know that you are hurting other people around you. And it could even be finally things where you know that you are living out something that is short of the glory of God in the world in the way that you present Christ. And this isn't about judgment and it's not about shame and this is just between you and and God but I'm going to read this passage and then we're going to pray. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord. You must no longer live as Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They're darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because the ignorance that's in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity. They're full of greed. That is not the way of life you have learned. When you heard about Christ and were taught in him accordance with the truth that's in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on this new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ forgave you. Church, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, 
and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Shall we stand?